you have your Bibles, you turn to Exodus chapter 15. Um, it has been a, a good week here. If you remember a couple weeks ago, right before I went on sabbatical, um, we received an offering for Brother Abraham in India. That, that's a ministry that Radiant Network, the network we're part of, supports. Um, and they support hundreds and hundreds of churches in India and orphanages. And with the COVID rising, there's no resources. They usually come to the states and itinerate to raise money for the orphanages and these churches. So the pastors aren't able to eat. They don't have enough money to bury the dead in their churches. And so we collected an offering here. I think it was a little bit over seven, it was seven to eight thousand dollars we collected here. But all together with the Radiant Network, we raised over two hundred thousand dollars that went to Brother Abraham. So give yourselves a round of applause. Um, so that's a good thing just to see the body of Christ working together to, to serve uh, in ways that we don't even know it's going to make a difference in. And so that's a powerful thing. Um, as you turn to Exodus 15, if you haven't downloaded our Church Center app uh, in there, our sermon notes are in there every single week so you can keep up with what's going on. You see the scriptures, you can actually download those. It's a great resource to you. And so last week we started this series, Still Holy, and last week we talked about God is still holy, 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 that, that Isaiah had this vision of God in the throne room, and this throne room, that what's going on in the throne room in, in Isaiah goes on in the book of Revelation, and will go on for all of eternity, that the seraphim are singing over God, over the throne, holy, holy, holy. They're not singing love, love, love. They're not singing just, 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 or, or judge, judge, judge. It's, it's holy, holy, holy. And I think one of the things that happens, I don't know about you, but our kids, we were in uh, Puerto Rico and one of their friends called them and said, have you got your food stamp cards yet? And we're, our kids are like, what? So Florence City, maybe all schools in Alabama, but with um, COVID, there was some money, federal money, grant money that came to schools to help offset school lunch prices. And so since they weren't in school all of the days of school, they actually gave them money on EBT cards. So the funny story is this, this young man who called our kids was black. He said, I'm just calling all my white friends, make sure they don't throw it away because they don't know what it is. He's like, if you don't want it, I'll take it. So we, we're messing around with the kids. But it reminded me of our school lunches back in the day. I remember going to school. Remember these prison trays they used to give us? Like they gave us these prison trays. And the school lunches were disgusting back. And, you know, I'm aging myself here. So, you know, when I'm probably 80s and 90s, some of you, you probably had a um, newspaper. That's how old you are to put your food on. But show that picture of that first meal. This is kind of meals that were like when I was in school, that they gave us, first of all, milk in a bag, which should never, ever happen. And my question would be, how do they actually get the milk into that bag? And show the, the pizza slice. And pizza does not come with corn. I don't care what they tell you. Pizza does not come with corn, nor with chocolate milk. And you don't eat pizza with a spoon and a fork. And so if you remember in school or in the military, they give you one of these trays and you would go down the line in the cafeteria and you'd begin to pick out the things that you liked. And you were always hoping it was not sloppy Joe day or Salisbury steak day, but pizza day or hamburger day. And you'd pick out the things that you like and you wouldn't pick the things that you don't like. So you'd skip past those things. So then on your plate, the only things you would have were the things that you wanted to eat or the only things they actually had. And I think in much the same way that when it comes to God, we carry a tray in our soul. And when we read the Bible or we go to church, we start picking out the things of God we enjoy or we like or we understand or we're comfortable with, and then we reject things that we're uncomfortable with. We reject things we don't understand. And in doing so, we end up carrying to our table a God that 
agrees with us or conforms to what we want or what we think about God instead of taking the full counsel of God or having a a well-balanced view or perspective of who God is. And it's almost like this couple of years ago, our daughter Araya is not our baker in the family and she wanted to bake some brownies. And so she baked some brownies and she brought one to us to try out. She was super proud. And we bit into this brownie and I don't know if it was a brownie or not. It was bland, it was rough, it was not good. It was still a brownie. It looked like a brownie. It kind of smelled like a brownie, but it did not taste like a brownie. It, was, it felt like it was missing something. And so I said, right, it's, you know, as a dad, you're like, oh, baby, it's great. Just, I, I'm full. I don't need another one. No, it's great. But, and I was like, you know, did you, was there any ingredients missing? She said, well, maybe a little different because it was missing some stuff. So she had a brownie in principle, but it wasn't really a brownie. And some of you in this room and some of you people even online, some of you, you've been eating of Christianity for years, but it's been bland. You didn't like the taste of it. You didn't agree with it. And so you take a bite and you kind of push it away because somebody left out some of the ingredients that ties everything together. See, there's certain ingredients that when you bake or cook something, they tie all the other attributes or characteristics together with that food product. But if it's missing that ingredient, all the other ingredients don't fit together. And sometimes we have Christianity that is more cafeteria-style Christianity, where people pick and choose what they want, but when they leave out holiness, the justice of God doesn't feel good or taste good. When you leave out holiness, sometimes mercy doesn't feel good. When you leave out holiness, sometimes the sovereignty of God doesn't quite make sense. When you leave out holiness, sometimes love gets sloppy and unusable. When you leave out the main attribute of who God the Father is, all the other ingredients make it taste a little awkward. That's why holiness is super important. It's because we are living in a day and age where people are leaving out the holiness of God and in doing so, we're eating Christianity that doesn't taste sweet to our souls. If you would stand to your feet, let's read Exodus chapter 15, just verse 11 today. It says this. This is Moses' song. They've, they've been delivered. They've crossed the Red Sea. Moses is, wrote, wrote a song. He's a worship leader at this time. And this is one of just lines. It says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Somebody say majestic. majestic. He's majestic in holiness. Awesome in glorious deeds, doing amazing wonders. Father, we thank you that you are a holy God. And all your attributes, all your characteristics fit together perfectly within your holiness. Now, Father, without a lens of holiness, Nothing in life makes sense. Nothing about you makes sense. But with holiness, everything fits together in its perfect harmony. I pray for this morning just for a revelation of holiness that dictates and determines every single thing about you. So, Father, open up our minds, awaken our spirits, and empower us to be the people you've called us to be, to live in love like Jesus. And we thank you, we bless you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we kind of tagged on this last week where holiness isn't an attribute of God. It is the attribute of God. One theologian says holiness is the crown that sits upon the head of God. So so holiness is the crown 
of God. All his attributes would be the jewels in there. So love would be a jewel. Mercy would be a jewel. Jealousy would be a jewel. Graciousness would be a jewel. Everlasting, unconditional love would be a jewel. All these things are jewels, but what holds the jewels together and displays them so everybody can see them is the holiness of God. And when you remove the holiness, the jewels no longer shine like they're supposed to shine. Now they're separate. Now they're individuals. Now they don't shine in in joining together perfectly in harmony. It's like a, a jigsaw puzzle. If you have a jigsaw puzzle, all the attributes of God are are individual pieces. But you really can't get a good, clear picture of who God is until all those pieces come together. When you start putting the piece of love and the piece of mercy and the piece of of peace and the piece of uh, God's wrath and the piece of God's justice and the peace, all these pieces, when you lay them together and they fit together perfectly, that is holiness. See, holiness isn't a piece. It's when you bring all the pieces together in perfect harmony. That's God's holiness. It's his love plus his joy. It's his sovereignty plus his freedom. It's the mercy plus his justice. All those things equal holiness. Because without the holiness, they all fall apart. Could you imagine? God? We, there's a theological term. God is omnipotent, he's omniscient, and he's omnipresent. Would you, could you just imagine if God was omniscient, meaning he knows all things. He knows everything that's going to happen, everything that has happened, everything that's not going to happen. He knows every thought you have. He knows everything that you've done. He knows everything you're going to do. Could you imagine if God was not holy, what he could do with all the thoughts you've ever thought? Could you imagine if God was not holy, what he could do with knowing the beginning from the end, how much he could manipulate and get it to work out, not for our good, but for his good? Could you imagine if God is omnipotent with all this power, but he wasn't holy? How he could use his power in ways that could detriment and destroy his creation rather than save his creation. Could you imagine if God was omnipresent, but he wasn't holy? Meaning he's at every place and every time, and he's seeing everything you do. What if he wasn't holy? If he wasn't holy, it wouldn't be a holy presence. It'd be an evil presence. And so doing so, holiness is what holds everything together to help it make sense and display God's goodness for all. But what happens is it's raining outside, so hopefully you had an umbrella. Holiness is like the covering that covers all the attributes of God, meaning it protects them from from evil. It protects them from being manipulated or controlled. It protects them. So underneath God's holiness, his love is made perfect. Underneath his holiness, his justice is truly just. Underneath his holiness, his mercy is pure. Underneath his holiness, all his attributes make sense and fit together. But we live in a world where all our culture wants to do is remove his attributes outside of his holiness. Well, now they're not defined by who God is. Now they're defined by what culture says they are. And in doing so, something that is pure underneath the holiness of God now becomes unholy and doesn't taste the way it should underneath God's holiness. And so what culture tries to do is they want parts of God, but they don't want the holiness of God because the holiness of God demands praise, worship, and submission. So in order not to submit to the king or lord or to a higher power, they begin to take the pieces or attributes or characteristics of the Bible 
or God or Jesus and pull them out from underneath his holiness to make them their own. Thomas Jefferson did this. You know, Thomas Jefferson had his Jeffersonian Bible where he cut out all the things that referred to the supernatural and only left the things that were natural in it. What was he doing? He was pulling out the the things from God that he liked and leaving everything else where he didn't want to have to deal with it. We do the same thing. God's love only makes sense when it's holy. Grace only makes sense when it's holy. Justice only makes sense when it's holy. But we tend to try to pull things out from underneath it because when it comes to the holiness of God, the power of God, the mercy of God, sometimes it's just easier to fit in with culture than to fit in with Jesus. Because the fit in our Jesus, if he's holy, all these things are under, I have to come underneath his holiness in order to receive everything that he is. If I don't, then I have to try to sneak in. And love, grace, and justice are the items or the, the characteristics or the attributes of God that society and culture is trying to pull away from God to make their own. Jonathan Edwards called, he said, we're in a day and age where love He said there was a big push in the 1700s with love. There were eros love and agape love and phileo love and all these. He said, we don't even need to talk about the Greek words. He said, we just need to know there's a holy love and an unholy love. There's a holy love and an unholy love. A holy love is when it's underneath the covering of God. An unholy love is when you take it out and you remove it from God's holiness. It becomes something totally different. What that means is holy love seeks to please God. It seeks to please God. It wants to honor God and and love God and submit to God and surrender to God and worship God and bless God and and please God. Like, God, I love you because you've loved me. I just want to live my life. It pleases you. But unholy love, when you pull it out from the umbrella of God's holiness, unholy love doesn't seek to please God. It seeks selfish pleasure. 2 Timothy, it says this. This is Paul talking about the end of times. He says, for people will be a lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. Meaning they're still loving. They still love, they just don't want to please God, they want to please themselves, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Timothy's talking about the end of times, he's saying, there's still going to be love. They're going to talk about love. They're going to, they're going to love one another. They're going to love things that are created. There's going to be love, it's going to be a love movement, but it's going to miss the things that actually make it love. It's going to be a form of love, but it's going to deny the holiness of God. And instead of pleasing God, it's going to be seeking to please self. Because there's a term in culture today that love is love. Well, that's a, that's a lie. There's a love that's holy and there's a love that's unholy. And so and since we define love is love, we're using love to justify a whole lot of things that are not very loving. Love has been used to justify the Holocaust that we don't hate Jews, we just love our German nation. Love has been used to justify assisted suicides. That is the loving thing to do. Love has been used to justify every known sin we've ever known. And then the, today's language, was, well, if it doesn't hurt anybody else, what's it matter? 
It benefits me. It pleases me. And the people that I'm, I'm doing it with, it, they're fine with it. So if it's not bothering anybody else, then it doesn't matter because love is love. The problem with that is you may enjoy it, but maybe, just maybe, we should think about, does this please God? It pleases you. It, it may please your political base. It may please your friends. It may please the society that you're part of. But what about God? See, holy love seeks to please God because God is love. And all love begins with God. And everything that we receive comes to this pouring out of God's love into our lives. And the proper response is to please him back. Like he sought after us. See, love is unconditional. Like we know that through scripture. God's love is unconditional. But that doesn't mean it's unconditional acceptance. What that means is God's love is unconditional. It moves towards us. It moves from Calvary to the deepest, darkest valley. It's God's love that he loved us before we even sinned. It's God's love that he loved us in the middle of our sin. It's God's love that he still loves us after we sin. God's love compels him to pursue and seek after us. He loves us unconditionally. Nothing you can do can make him love you more or less. That is guaranteed. But his acceptance is conditional based upon his holiness and the standard he requires to be in him. So yes, God's love is unconditional. But to be underneath his umbrella with him means I have to step from unholiness to holiness. And I only do that by the blood of Jesus. God loves every single person ever created. But the only people that are accepted are those who have been washed through the blood of Jesus, made holy, and now can stand in the presence of a holy God. But the world will tell you that unconditional love is unconditional acceptance. Because they remove the holiness. When they remove the holiness, now the whole definition changes. First Corinthians 13, we read this in weddings all the time, but it's more about God's love than it is just our love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes in all things, endures all things, and love never ends. That is the love of God that moves towards us in its holy form. But what happens is once you remove the holiness, it no longer becomes pure. And we're seeing in our culture, love, the culture is love. Everything's love-based. Everything's love. Everything's based on love. But our society is deteriorating Our families are deteriorating. Our churches are deteriorating because we have a form of love, but it lacks the purity it needs to actually endure. And only holy love endures trials, mistakes, suffering, betrayal, abuse, differing opinions. Only a holy love can maintain through the ups and downs of life. An unholy love sways back and forth. Unholy love loses its purity. It only seeks to please itself. In marriage, you see it as one spouse is saying, I'm just not happy anymore. I don't feel like I'm in love with you anymore. Well, honey, this ain't no Disney movie. There are ups and downs to this. 
And you shouldn't have gotten married to be happy. You should have gotten married to honor each other, to make each other better, not worse, and to honor God through two becoming one. See, a holy love seeks to not just give and receive, but to give and receive and point to the God who gave them the love in the first place. And unholy love just looks for what it can get out of it, and once it gets enough out of it, it moves on to the next recipient. And that's the culture we live in right now. But the other part, so if there's an unholy love and a, and a love that's holy, but there's a holy grace and an unholy grace. Like culture has grace, but a holy grace is, is defined as this. Holy grace empowers us to live differently. Unholy grace is an excuse to keep living the exact same way. What that means is when you get saved, you are saved by the grace of God. Meaning the grace of God moved towards you. Grace, what this means to me, grace means God initiates or God moves first. God initiated your salvation. He was pursuing you. Everything that's ever happened in your life, good or bad, was grace. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of all time, said this way. He said, kiss the wave that throws you up against the rock of ages. What he's saying is kiss the broken marriage that threw you back towards Jesus. Kiss the cancer that threw you back into the sovereignty of Jesus. Kiss the bad moments because they throw you towards the gospel. Everything that God does to move us towards him is grace. Like Grace is God's initiating and empowering presence in our lives. And when he reaches towards us in grace, that grace enables us to live differently than we did before we met Jesus. Unholy grace, people use an excuse to keep living the same exact way. What that means is sloppy grace is what I call it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it, uh, he calls it costly grace and sloppy grace. What that means is this, that God is loving. God, God is so gracious. God is so merciful. Like, he'll forgive me when I do this. Or I can just live my life how I want to because God is a forgiving God. God is a gracious God. Or, or even with the, the once saved, always saved doctrine. Well, I'm already saved, so what difference is it going to make if I do this because I'm going to heaven anyway? That's unholy grace. You cannot taste the grace of God and want to keep on sinning. It's impossible. It's impossible to taste the grace of God and want to keep on sinning. Pastor Lee Cummings a friend here, part of the radio network, said, grace is the root of God's love flowing from his character, undeservedly transplanted into our hearts at salvation, which spreads throughout our entire being, empowering us, transforming us into the image of the vine himself. Meaning grace is a force. It's a tailwind. It's the wind that comes and blows you towards Jesus, not farther away from Jesus. It's the wind that blows you into conforming to Jesus. It never blows you in the opposite direction. And so when you truly experience grace, it moves you towards holiness, not farther away from holiness. It should draw you deeper into Jesus, not deeper into the world. It should draw you deeper into the gospel, not deeper into works or the law. It should draw you deeper into the love of Jesus. And when you're there, you should be motivated to never, ever go backwards. Romans 6, Paul's dealing with this with the Romans. He said this in verse 1. It says, what shall, we see? what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What he's saying is he just started preaching the, the, the doctrine of grace and the doctrine of election. 
He's saying grace is amazing. Grace is beautiful. You know, it's amazing that feeling you get when you're forgiven of all your sins, that burden that has been relieved from you. You feel lighter. You feel freedom. You feel joy. And he's talking to these Romans. He says, I know that experience was great. I know the feeling of forgiveness is amazing. But should we keep on sinning just so grace can keep on coming into our lives and and feel that thing? He says, no, by no means, no. Like you should not keep sinning because you've experienced Grace, he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He's saying, holy grace draws you and puts you into a position where you're seeking to please God and honor him. Unholy grace becomes an excuse to keep living like the world. You can always tell when somebody's truly experienced grace. Because when somebody has truly experienced grace, they never dabble in the world. They pour themselves out into Jesus. It's the only true response. When you realize how much you've forgiven, when you realize how unholy you were, Yet Jesus died to make you whole. One person said grace means this, God's riches at Christ's expense. Meaning, God has given me his riches because Christ paid for it. That's grace. Why, once I experience that, would I keep trying to get him to crank up his debt load for me? I should be pleased. I'm not the biggest speeder out there, but I get a speeding ticket at least once a year. And I don't know if somebody's got that. APB out on me or what it is, but I get pulled over nine times out of ten. It's St. Florine, so now I drive around St. Florine. It's Rogersville, so now I put cruise control in Rogersville. But if we drive to Nashville or back, one of those little towns, they're always going to try to get me. So I've gotten got before. I got got in May. One time, one time I got pulled over for speeding. I was guilty. Guilty as charged. He pulled me over. He goes back, have your driver's license, your registration. So I'm going through. I know the routine. Like I could probably do this for him. I could save him the time and do it myself. Give him my license, give him my registration. He goes back to the car. He comes back. He says, sir, I'm going to let you off with a warning this time. He probably saw my tickets in there and felt sorry for me. He says, sir, I'm going to let you off with a warning this time. Man, I was grateful. He was showing me grace when I didn't deserve grace. I said, sir, man, thank you so, so much. Like, my wife's going to be very happy with me. Thank you so much. He goes back to his car. I'm in my truck. I take it out of park. I'm about to get to drive. Do you think I drove off speeding? Do you think I drove off switching lanes and cutting people off and saying, ha-ha, I got grace, I'm good? No, I was grateful for what he had given me. Therefore, I tried to live up to the standard he was wanting to enforce. When you receive grace, and you truly realize that you receive grace. You don't run off from the altar and start living life however you want to because you say, well, God's got my back. He's going to give me grace again. No, you say, I don't want to mess this up. Like he's given me something. He showed me mercy when I didn't deserve it. He showed me grace when I didn't deserve it. I'm going to try my best to please him and live up to the standard that he just gave me. That's real grace. It's not legalistic. It's, it's, see, we don't serve God to try to get him to love us. We serve God because he's loved us. 
It's part of my response back. You've shown me so much. You've given me so much mercy. My response back is just to live my life in a way that pleases you, honors you, and fulfills everything you ask for me. Holy grace empowers us to live differently. Unholy grace, sloppy grace is an excuse to keep living the same way. And the third one is this. There's a holy justice and an unholy justice. And I believe this one right now is the key pivotal battleground in the characteristics of God. There's a holy justice and an unholy justice. Holy justice is satisfied when there's renewal and restoration. I mean, the holiness of God seeks restoration and renewal. Unholy justice just seeks to cancel the other person. We see this right now with, with, with cancel culture. See, when, when God exhibits his justice, which he's a God of justice from the beginning of the Bible to the end. Adam and Eve messed up. Justice had to come. God is a God of justice. He is not a God of punishment. Punishment means there's no restoration or renewal. We're just making you pay for what you did. That is not God. God may discipline, but he does not punish. Years ago, I was part of a situation with some church leadership. There was somebody who had an issue in, in ministry, and they were walking through. They said, we're kicking him out of the church. We're doing this. We're doing that. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, what's the path of restoration? They said, well, there's not one. I was like, what do you mean there's not one? They said, no, there's no restoration for this. I said, no, no, no. I said, God is a God of discipline, not punishment. If you're seeking to punish somebody for what they did, that's never God. But if you're seeking a way to restore them and renew them to repentance so God can do something new in them, that is God. And so the world doesn't operate in restoration or renewal. The world operates on cancel. Cancel culture. We're just going to cancel. If you do something we don't like, we're going to cancel you. I'm going to get all my people on social media. I'm going to hashtag you. I'm going to get you lose your job, your platform, your Twitter account, your Facebook. We're just going to cancel you because we don't want to deal with what you want to deal with. That's unholy justice. Meaning somebody does something we don't agree with, we're going to try to cancel you. It's a mob mentality. Holy justice doesn't operate from a mob mentality. It operates from a God mentality of what is God's ultimate plan for all of humanity. I can tell you, his ultimate plan for all humanity is not to send everybody to hell to pay for their sins. His ultimate plan of humanity is to provide a payment so that we can be restored and renewed back to God. That is holy justice. Cancel culture is unholy at its root. And what it seeks to do is use the mob to separate us from anything that challenges our thinking or challenges holy justice. I mean, they've, we've, we've canceled Dr. Seuss. We've canceled Disney. We've canceled uh, Harry Potter and J.K. Rowling. Anytime somebody says something we don't agree with or, or, or maybe it's a mistake, we cancel them. And I'm talking about left and right. It's just a cancel call. One way or another, we're going to cancel. Black Rifle Company, I just read this morning, is a, is a right-wing based company that provides coffee. They're getting canceled by both sides now because one guy said something neither side agreed with, so they're going to lose their entire business. That's cancel culture. And I will tell you, cancel culture is a trend that when you start pursuing it, it turns its head back around on you like a snake and will bite you in return. 
Like all these people that are on the front side of cancer, you see they're promoting it and promoting it and promoting it. And at some point they get bit too, just like the Me Too movement. These people hashtag Me Too, hashtag Me Too, until they get caught in their infidelities and equities. It reminds me of, as you guys, a youth church camp, it was senior, it's like a senior day we would do. And, uh, we're trying to find these cliffs to jump off. Couldn't find these cliffs at Lake, uh, Lake Kentucky or Kentucky Lake and couldn't find the cliffs. Looking for them, looking for them. So finally we found this Jurassic Park gate. Remember Jurassic Park, this huge gate that automatically opens. So for $5 that you can get in, the gate will open. And it's like a buffalo bison haven in Kentucky. So we opened it up and there's these wild buffalo. It's like you're in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. It's just beautiful, big, big buffalo. So I stopped the church van. One of the kids says, let's get out and go chase them. I was like, I don't think that's a good idea. Oh, no, it's cool. They get out and there's, there's buffalo. I mean, buffalo are huge. All these seniors in high school, they think they're invincible and all-powerful. They, they start clapping, and they start stampeding away from them. They start chasing this whole herd of buffalo, chasing and chasing. They're screaming, having the time of their lives. Yeah, yeah, they're screaming. All of a sudden, that stampede began to turn. And when it turned, it all of a sudden started chasing after all these kids. And his kids, it was all fun and jovial, now are running for lives, jumping into this church van to get away from the stampede. Cancel culture is the same way. It's all fun and jovial when you're on the side, you're canceling other people. Until the stampede turns on you and begins to try to cancel you. See, Jesus did Luke 23 in the trial of Jesus. Jesus stands before Pilate and Herod. He just says, nothing. It's, do you say, they're saying this about you. He just says nothing. What about this? He just says nothing. They say that you said you're the king of the Jews. Is that true? He says, it is as you said. Pilate takes it out, places him and Barabbas next to him. He knew there was a, a custom that they could release one prisoner. He knew Jesus was innocent. Yet he has Barabbas here, this guilty thief, rioter, revolutionary, protester, standing there. He says, which one do you want me to release? They said, Barabbas. Pilate's like, what? No, no, no. I don't think you understand. Barabbas is the thief. Barabbas is the rioter. Barabbas is guilty or Jesus, king of the Jews. And they started shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate says, whoa, one more time. I don't think you understand. This custom releases one prisoner from their penalty back in life. You have Barabbas, who's the rioter. Barabbas, who's evil. Barabbas, who's the person who's stolen from you and your family. Barabbas, who calls an uprising. Barabbas, or Jesus, who's never hurt anybody, who's healed the sick, who raised the dead, who's taught the kingdom of heaven. Which one? They said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. You could translate that and say, cancel him, cancel him, cancel him. Cancel him, cancel him, cancel him. And all he did was say things that made them feel uncomfortable. All he did was say things that provoked them out of their sin towards the holiness of God. They would rather have a thief and a robber and a rioter, an ungodly, sinful man released than the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
Cancel him, cancel him, cancel him. All they're saying is, we don't want to hear his teaching anymore. We don't want to hear his relationship with the Father anymore. We don't want to hear about the Father's love anymore. We don't want to hear about the kingdom of heaven anymore. Cancel him, cancel him, cancel him. Man, it reminds me so much of today. In a culture that will elevate those that are unholy. That will elevate those who live in ways that are wicked and vile and sickening. But you want to cancel the very words and character of God. See, holy justice seeks to renew and restore. Unholy justice just wants to get you out of the way so I can keep living my life the way I want to and not have to think about anything else. What's incredible about Luke 23 they're crying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Cancel him, cancel him. Can-. Pilate goes, he washes his hands. He says, this man is not guilty. I'm washing my hands. This is on you. They take Jesus. They mock him. They beat him. They nail him to the cross. And as he was walking through town, they, they made fun of him. They spit on him. They put him on the cross. They elevate him up. And what does Jesus say? Father, cancel them for what they've done. Cancel them for what they've said about me. Father, cancel them for what they've said about you. Father, cancel them for their heresy. God, cancel them for their blasphemy. No, no, no. See, holy justice never tries to cancel people. It tries to restore and renew. Jesus doesn't cancel. He said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. See, the justice of God is perfect. If God does something, it's just. Even if you don't like it, even if you don't, it doesn't make sense to you, if God does something, it's just. And if we're going to worship God in spirit and truth, we have to worship from his holiness and let God define what love is. Let God define what grace is. Let God define what justice is. Because we're in a day and age, I believe what's going to set the church apart of those three things. It's going to be holy love. There's a fight right now between the definition of holy love and unholy love. Culture thinks they're winning the game at defining love as being unholy. The church you have to fight to produce a holy love that seeks to please God and change the world. Grace, we're going to have to grab a hold of a grace that is true grace that enables us to live and love like Jesus, not live and love like celebrities in Hollywood. And we're going to need a justice because when people, no matter if you agree with them or not, when the world cancels them, they're going to need people that reach down to try to restore them and renew them. And that's the mission of the church. These politicians that you don't like or you don't agree with, these celebrities that you think are vile or sick, these people maybe in your life that you think are wrong in this, when they begin to get canceled, it's God's mission for his church to reach into a mission and a ministry of reconciliation, restoration, and renewal. And it only comes when you're looking at the throne of God and understanding his plan for humanity. His plan for humanity is not cancel culture. It is redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes just for a minute. I do believe there's going to be a a movement of holiness that God provokes in the church in the next few years. Holy living, holy standards for God's people, I believe an emphasis on the character and the holiness of God, but also believe in a holy definition of love. 
a holy definition of grace and a holy definition of justice. Because God is a just God. Every wrong will be righted. Every offense shall be taken care of. It's not our job to create justice. It's our job to disperse justice. Right now, every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're in this room, you say, maybe you've been enamored. Maybe you had that cafeteria tray and you're going down the line. Maybe you admit that you just kept putting love and grace on your plate. Love and grace. You kept living however you want to live. You were using the love of God to justify you living to please yourself and your desires and your sin and everything else. Then you're using grace as an excuse to keep living the same way you were living. And you realize that you need holy love and holy grace in your life. You need a love that draws you deeper into Jesus. You need a love that seeks to please God. You want a grace that forgives you of everything you've done that enables you to live differently in a way that responds to God's grace through a life of submission and surrender. That's you. He said, I want today to be a day I just make a marker in time where I start anew with holy love, holy grace, holy justice in my life in a way that I just want to give God my life and say, have me, use me, mold me, transform me, change me. And I realize I've I've sinned against you. I realize I've been living the opposite direction of you. I just want to be perfectly in your will. And right now I'm saying I surrender. That's you. Every head bowed, every eyes closed, just for one quick moment. That's you. I'm going to have you come forward. That's you. Just slip your hand up real quick right where you are. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Put your hands down after you raise them. Anybody else? Thank you. I'm going to pray for you in just a quick second as I pray for you as soon as service is over I'm going to help you live in love like Jesus I'm going to help you walk that out and so as you leave in the main lobby right to the right there's a connection point area just let one of the workers there know that you raised your hand they'll give you some resource materials so we can love on you and encourage you but Father we thank you for the blood of Jesus that washes us that cleanses us that renews us and the Father moves us from unholy to holy and Father we thank you for a holy love that you've poured into our hearts through Jesus. And right now, for these people to raise their hands, Father, I pray for that love to flood their minds with a new identity. I pray that you flood their hearts with mercy and forgiveness. I pray that you flood their souls with peace that surpasses understanding. Father, I pray for a grace that enables them to live the life you've called them to live. And Father, I pray for a justice that seeks to renew and restore their relationships, their purpose, their passions, and their lives back to your God-given purpose. Father, above all, I pray that you receive honor and glory through their lives, that everything they do is for your glory and your honor. Father, I pray that you use them as missionaries in their relationships to share the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, to share the good news of grace. And Father, use them to carry your message into every place they go. And Father, above all, I pray that you protect them, you seal them with your Holy Spirit, and you protect them from every attack of the enemy. And we thank you, we bless you in Jesus' name.